So we're starting a new series in 1 Corinthians this morning, very exciting. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 10 to 17. Uh, Bibles, if anyone needs a Bible, would you like to put your hand in the air and one will be delivered to you? Fantastic. And if you don't have a Bible at home, then this is our free gift to you. So please feel free to take that home. So just while you're finding that passage, um, just a bit of background for you for where we're at. So we're in 1 Corinthians, uh, and here Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth off the back of some reports that he's got about these guys that things aren't going so well in their church. What's been happening is that there's been some real division in the church. A lot of different groups have kind of formed or kind of like different factions. And this has happened because the people have been like playing favorites with their preachers. Um, basically, there's three prominent kind of figures at the time. There's Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And these three guys, uh, different groups or kind of fan clubs have kind of like formed around these teachers. Uh, and it's moved just beyond kind of preferring their preaching style or their personality. And it's got to the point where they're like, I pledge allegiance to Paul. I pledge allegiance to Apollos. I belong to them. So it's kind of got a little bit serious. Or even some people are saying, I don't want to come under any human authority at all. I belong to Christ. So what's happened in the church is there's these real divisions have come. And this uh, kind of disunity has infected the church because of this. So the first part of the letter, Paul is writing to address this. So we're going to read from chapter 1, 10 to 17. So if you want to turn, turn to that. Cool. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I quite like that bit. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what's Paul's goal here in this? In verse 10, he says, it, he says, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no division, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So this is Paul's call for unity for the guys in Corinth, that there's agreement and that you're united in mind and thought and no division among them, that they be united in Christ. And unity, to me, it sounds like quite a nice word. When I heard, hear the word unity, it sounds a little bit a little bit soft, if I'm honest. It's kind of like flowers and lambs and daisy chains when you hear the word unity. But you know, I was, I was praying about this last night, and actually, I, I think God uh, just, just kind of gave me a picture of what unity actually looks like. And I just got just saw this picture of kind of like hot coals kind of being gathered and being brought together and it's like they're kind of hot on their own but when all these coals are brought together and they're kind of like huddled up it's like they get really hot they get white hot and then as soon as anything touches them it's like it goes into flame and it's this idea of unity not just being a kind of oh that's a nice thing it'd be nice if we had some unity but it actually being something that's like powerful 
and almost like a weapon against the enemy because when we're in unity, when we're as we're supposed to be, God can use us and there's real power in that. So I want you to kind of have that in the back of your mind as we're looking at this today. This isn't just a kind of, oh, unity would be nice. This is like, this is good stuff. This is powerful. This is what God wants for us. So today we're looking at verse 13, uh, where Paul asked the Corinthians three rhetorical, very sarcastic questions. And doing this, he's kind of reminding them about three, reminding them of three fundamental truths about Jesus. He's pointing them back to Jesus and in doing that, he wants to kind of bring them into unity. So the first reminder he gives is of the wholeness of Jesus when he says, is Christ divided? He's talking about the wholeness of Jesus. I don't know if there's any fans of the, the Great British Bake Off in the room. A few? Oh, so I was at North last week. Pretty much half the congregation were like, yes, we're proud Bake Off fans. Not so many here. I don't know. So I don't know if you guys remember uh, the kind of big scandal with the Baked Alaska and Ian. Yeah, yeah. And then in the celebrity one not too long ago, Joanna Lumley making a chocolate cake, put uh, coffee instead of cocoa powder in it. Disaster. I'm, I'm not a big baker at all. I don't even like cakes. But for some reason, I love the Bake Off. I can't get enough of it. Hazel made me watch it, and uh, I'm hooked. So I absolutely love the Bake Off. But I want to imagine that somebody uh, has made you a cake. Someone has made a gorgeous cake for you. Let's say it's a really nice sponge. And this is one that Mary Berry herself would be proud of. This is a great cake. It's a, uh, you know, perfect color, nice kind of sponginess to it, nice kind of spring off it. I presume that's what you look for in sponge cake. I don't actually know. You know, great color, smells great, all that kind of stuff. So you've got this and then you go, I want to just have a look at the ingredients. I want to look at what you've put into the cake. And then you look at the ingredients, you're like, I'm not a big fan of flour. I'm not a big fan of eggs and butter, but I really like sugar. So what, would be, so what you decide to do is to take your cake and to try and pick out all of the sugar from the cake. So you sit there bit by bit, trying to go through the cake, get all the sugar out. How successful do you think you're gonna be? Not very at all. In the end, not only have you failed to separate any sugar from the cake at all, but what you're left with is a pile of crumbs and no cake. Pretty sad. So Paul's question, we're going to come back to that. That's going to make sense in a minute. Paul's question, is Christ divided, is clearly a sarcastic one. Of course, the answer is supposed to be no. Christ is not divided. But perhaps a better translation of that phrase is, has Christ been kind of dished out between these different groups? Has he been parceled out to you? So in Corinth, these different groups have formed that are drawn to these different preachers, these different personality types. You know, it's thought that Peter was more kind of in line with the Jewish way of thinking and Apollos was supposed to be like a really good speaker and some people were more drawn to that. So these different groups are focusing on these men, but by doing that, by focusing on these different things that they like, they're not getting a full picture of Jesus. You know, how could they be? They're just following individual men. And the same way with that cake, in the same way, by focusing on one aspect of Jesus that they like, by trying to just kind of hold on to that thing, what they do is they end up losing the whole thing. In effect, they lose the whole cake by trying to just get the one thing that they want. So they're led away from Jesus by idolizing these men in his place. And Paul is trying to back, draw them back to the fullness of who Jesus is and that picture of him being one and whole and remind them of that. Or another way to look at it might be, imagine that you have a close friendship with someone 
And then what you do is one day you sit down and you go, I'm going to make a list about this person. I'm going to make a list about them. And then you go up to them and you go, how's, how's it going? I've got a list. What I've, I've done is I've made a list of all the things that, that are really good about you and then all the things that I really don't like. Okay, so let me just go through it. So the first one is, you know, I really like it when we hang out, we have a laugh, it's fantastic, it's really good. But, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, your feelings and stuff like that, I'm not really into that, that's not really my thing. Or, you know, when you want me to kind of help you out with stuff, you know, I'm a bit busy and I don't really have time for that. So what would be great for me is if you could just focus on, like, the good column over here and just ignore all the kind of stuff I'm not really into, that would be great. How about it? guaranteed way to lose your friendship pretty much, isn't it? It's not going to work. Obviously, we can't do that with people, can we? Because that's not how relationships work. We, we can't divide each other up into pros and cons and kind of try and focus on the things that are going to fit into our personality. But that's, in effect, what these groups are kind of doing with Jesus here. And it's like Paul is saying, no, Jesus is whole. Jesus is whole. The truth is we don't get to choose the parts of Jesus that we want, the aspects of him that like, appeal to us. You know, we might think, you know, oh, Jesus, I, I like the fact that, that you love me. That's, that's really cool. I like that. But I don't like the idea that I need to trust you with everything, with every area of my life. That I need to give control over to you. I'm not really into that. Or, or Jesus, I love the idea of grace. That's fantastic. But you know, when you want to challenge me over a particular area of sin in my life, no, I'm not really into that. But if we're doing that with Jesus, if we're kind of trying to take the, the sugar, or what we see as the sugar, in effect, and try and take those things out, what we end up doing, if we're trying to do that, is just we end up losing the whole thing. We'll lose all of him. It won't work. Jesus wants us to embrace him, the wholeness of who he is. We can have all of him or we can have none of him. So Paul, in just using three words, is Christ divided, has kind of brought us to this point, the point that Jesus is one, Jesus is whole, and we choose either to accept him or reject him entirely as he is. And if we accept him as whole, then we also have to accept each other as whole, this idea of unity, because if Jesus is one, then his body, the church, us, we also have to be one. As Christians, we're part of that body. So later on in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this about the body of Christ. So good. He says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? so that there should be no divisions in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one is honored, every part rejoices with it. So Paul isn't just highlighting the fact that in Jesus, you know, these different personalities, these different kind of uh, groups and styles kind of exist. He's not just saying that, you know, there's room for diversity in the body, but he's also saying that in that diversity, there's strength. And that God has actually designed it that way. It says God has placed the parts in the body just as he wanted them to be. So we're not supposed to be carbon copies of each other. There's supposed to be diversity like there is in these groups, but there's supposed to be unity in amongst that. There has to be. It's not just a nice optional extra. 
but unity is a necessity. So God has designed his church and placed each of us as parts of the body in Christ with a role to play. And this, this picture illustrates Paul's point so well. You know, these different kind of groups being like eyes saying to the ears, I don't need you, or hands saying to the feet, I don't need you, is a ridiculous thing. Without unity, the body doesn't work. It doesn't happen. And we don't have Jesus. And secondly, Paul reminds us that Jesus died for us. I love camping. I'm a huge fan of camping. And it's not, it's not just the kind of it's not even like the kind of tents and the sleeping bags. I'm not really into that whole part of it. But like just the idea of waking up and just being in the middle of nowhere, just being like wilderness. Like I love it. It's the kind of Bear grills thing kind of comes out. And I'm like, yes, I want to climb a mountain or something. I absolutely love it. I remember um, going on a, a kind of a walk with some, some guys and we'd been walking all day. It'd been really great, but we were exhausted. And uh, it was kind of a couple of hours before uh, like, before it was nighttime, so we need to find somewhere to camp. We're climbing up this hill, and as we get to the top, we're just, just going to the top, and as we look over the other side, I see one of the most stunning things I've ever seen in my life. It wasn't Hazel Ryan. It was a close second. Hazel's my fiance, by the way. I'm not just being creepy and calling people out. And it's fine. The second, the second most stunning thing I ever saw in my life. So we, we, get to, we get to the top of this hill and we look over and it's an incredible scene. There are, there's this huge valley. There's these massive hills on either side, like absolutely huge. And at the far end, there's uh, like three streams on top of this cliff all coming together to make one waterfall going into this huge lock in the middle. And it was just one of those moments where we were just like, just like absolutely took our breath away. It was incredible. And not only was it beautiful, but it was just the scale of it was just mind-blowing. And it was like in that moment, all of us just like felt like this big. And we were just like, whoa, this is incredible. And I love that. I love that sensation of feeling tiny when you're standing next to a mountain or kind of like looking at the stars or something like that. You're like, whoa, I am like so small in comparison to this stuff. And in the same way, when we look to the cross and when we see the beauty and the scale of what Jesus has done for us, we feel like this big. It brings us to a place of complete humility. There's nothing else in history that's been as, as significant or as important or as powerful as what Jesus did on the cross and the victory he won for him there. So Paul wants to remind the guys in Corinth, in Corinth of this. Again, he's asking a rhetorical question. He's saying, was Paul crucified for you? And again, it's like, of course not. Of course he wasn't. He's, he's saying this to kind of highlight their stupidity in putting anyone else in Jesus' place and following anyone else. As much as these guys that they were following were amazing figures of their day, um, they had no power to forgive sins. You know, they had no power to save the people that were following them. They were just men. It's like, it's like being amazed, impressed like by the size of like a puddle on the floor and being like, oh, it's incredible, and missing the fact that like the ocean is just behind you. It's that kind of thing of like you've missed the important thing. You've missed the main thing here by following these guys. So Paul is so deliberate. He wants to dismantle the notion of these groups um, that this is okay, so much so that he actually targets 
the group that is following him. He says, was Paul crucified for you? He doesn't say, was Apollos or was Peter crucified for you? You kind of think that maybe Paul would be sympathetic to the people that were, that were kind of on his side. He'd be like, well, you know, I'm, I quite like my teaching, and if they want to follow me, that's okay. It's like, he doesn't do that, though, does he? He's like, no, 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 no. He doesn't kind of try and pick who's right and who's wrong. He's like, the whole thing is wrong. All of this is wrong. This isn't good. It's all blasphemous to God. So he wants to bring each group, each party back to the cross. He wants to point them there and away from their devotion to him and the other teachers. In verse 17, he says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he recognizes that when the focus becomes about anything else, whether it's, you know, the style of preaching or kind of like how intelligent the person speaking is, when it becomes about anything else other than the gospel of Christ crucified, have walked away from Jesus and they need to be brought back. So why mention the cross? How does this bring unity to the guys in Corinth and to us? It's because at the cross we realize our own failing and our own sin. And through experiencing God's forgiveness, we're enabled to forgive those around us that have hurt us. Um, just, just for me, just in the, like a few years ago, I, I, someone who was very close to me um, like hurt me quite deeply. And I remember really clearly when that, in that moment that God was, I just felt God speaking really clearly and leading me to the, by the hand to forgive this person like right from the off and as much as that was a tough thing to do I just felt God being like you have been forgiven of a lot of stuff you are not kind of blameless in this you need to just forgive this person right away and I was like okay and I made that decision and it was just incredible how God used that and how afterwards I just so much pain and so much kind of bitterness was bypassed because God kind of made me do that and it just, it was incredible how he healed that relationship where there should have been like a lot more kind of anger and a lot more frustration. It was just in that moment, it was like God kind of dealt with it. And I've been on the other side of that as well. And I've been the person where someone has forgiven me when I've done something that's been like totally rough and just experienced that incredible forgiveness. And in that moment, it's just like, you see that that is God's heart, that his heart is that nothing would come between us, that we would have complete unity and I think forgiveness is just a huge part of that the cross is a beautiful picture of that of unity of where our grudges and our petty squabbles that can seem really big and can be kind of like amplified just melt away in the shadow of what Jesus has done and the cost that he paid for us so that we could be forgiven when we look at all of that stuff in the context of the cross those things just aren't a big deal anymore. And you know, and where there are times when we have been hurt much, where there's been really big things, we're reminded that Jesus suffered much as well. And that he endured pain on our behalf. And only in him can we find the strength to forgive in those circumstances. And only in him can we find that freedom. Just Satan wants to drive wedges between us. He wants to stir up disunity. And one way that, that he may try to do that is through the temptation of kind of comparison, where we're judging ourselves based on those around us, those people that in our heads, deep down, we might deem to be worse sinners than us. 
Um, or the other side of that is kind of people that we think, oh, they're like just super holy. There's no way I'm anywhere near them. And the result is either we, we feel self-righteous because we think we're better than someone or we just, there's self-deprecation because we think, oh, I'm nowhere near those, those guys. And no, neither of those things are healthy. Things look very different at the foot of the cross. It's a place where we're bound back together again. And at the cross, it's like a completely level playing field. And we can see that each of us have sinned greatly and been forgiven greatly. No one can claim to be made clean off their own efforts at the foot of the cross because we're all completely dependent on grace. And without the cross of Jesus, no one can come to God. And no one can know him. So we're never to forget that. If we ever start to move away from that simple truth, we need to come right back and kneel at the cross again and see its beauty and its scale. Finally, Paul gives us a reminder of who our Lord is, where he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, I've been to a lot of different churches kind of growing up. My dad was a minister, um, so... I've kind of been to a lot of different styles and a lot of different flavors. I've been to the kind of more loud, kind of Pentecostal kind of places and then the more reserved ones as well. And I remember one place that I went to, one kind of odd experience I had where I arrived at this church and I was wearing my normal attire. So it was like jeans, trainers and a t-shirt and everyone had like their Sunday best on. It was just like immaculate suits looking really sharp and I was just like oh no this is this is bad already I'm, I've not turned up as I should um, but I was like I'm not going to be deterred everyone stands up and they're they're singing the hymns and I have no idea what these hymns are like I've never heard them before but I like to sing and I like to sing loud so I'm like I'm not going to let this stop me I'm just going to kind of try and vaguely pick up the tune as I go along like, ah, like that joining in and then, you know, you know when you don't know a song and everyone else knows it, and there's those moments in songs where, like, there's a prolonged note or a word that everyone kind of goes, like, Lord, and you don't know when it's going to stop, but you're, like, trying to go, so everyone will be, like, Lord, I'll be, like, Lord, just, like, after, like, really loud. So I struggle through a couple of songs, and everyone sits down, uh, the, guy, the guy's praying, and then there's time for another hymn. I'm, like, I know this one brilliant i know it i'm in i'm gonna i'm gonna wow them all so uh like the so the organ starts playing i'm like i know this one i like this song I close my eyes i stand up like that and i just i'm belting it out and i can hear everyone around me they're singing it as well and i'm like brilliant i'm doing it and then after a minute or so i kind of think feel like something's wrong and i open my eyes i realize that no one else has stood up in the entire <laughs> congregation so i'm just on my own in this room stood up and rather than admit my mistake and just kind of like slowly go down to a seat i'm like i'm just going to pretend that i meant it and so i just stay up the whole time like maybe someone will join me no one joins me it's very awkward it's very very awkward so I sit down, and at uh, another point in the service, uh, they say the grace. I don't know if anyone knows the grace, but I grew up in a Methodist church, and we did the grace every week. And again, I was like, this time, I'm going to nail it. I know the grace. I know what you do. What you do is you say the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say all these words, and the idea is that you stand up, you make eye contact with people, you smile, you, you, know, you shake their hands maybe, you're very warm, and you're very loud because you're kind of like declaring the grace. Okay, so the guy goes, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to say the grace together. So I stand up, the grace of our Lord Jesus, like that, just swinging around, beaming at everyone, whilst everyone in the room is going, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, like that, whispering, I just look like a complete idiot. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't have dealt worse 
with that service. I couldn't have stuck out more like a sore thumb. It was pretty awkward. Pretty awkward. Ah, uh, what was the point of that story? Anyway. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the thing, the thing is, though, even though I navigated that service so poorly and, like, I really looked ridiculous whilst I was there, at no point did I feel unwelcome. At no point did I feel judged. At no point did I feel uncomfortable or like I shouldn't have been there. And the reason for that is because I read three words that were painted on the back of the wall in this church in big letters that said, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Lord. And I thought, you know what? That is totally right. And if that is true for these people here that I am like completely different to in terms of style or lack of in my case, or like, you know, in my, my poor kind of navigation of the service, even, even despite that, at the heart of it, we all love Jesus. At the heart of it, he is the Lord of our lives. He is the king. And all the other stuff, all the differences just fade away. They don't matter. It's just superficial stuff. So here in the last part of verse 13, Paul asked his final sarcastic rhetorical question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And because Paul is addressing this directly, it seems likely that the people in these groups were going around saying like, I have been baptized in the name of Apollos. And they were kind of using it as a kind of a boasting thing, claiming to be baptized in these preachers' name. We might not think much of that phrase, like to be baptized in the name of someone, um, but it doesn't just mean baptizing that person's name. It's like, that it stands for like the whole person. And the word in is literally into. So to be baptized into the name of someone was to kind of like have your whole life signed over to that person to completely come under their authority and to be at their beck and call. So you can see why Paul is so desperate to pull these people away from that kind of thinking and to point them right back to Jesus. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about Paul, Apollos, or Peter. It's about Jesus. Jesus is your Lord. He is your king. And when you're baptized, you're signing your life over to him. You're coming under his authority, and you're at his beck and call. So in effect, as Christians, we're Jesus's possessions. We belong to him. We might think that's a negative thing, but it's absolutely not. Romans 6 talks about how we've been saved from being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. And whereas sin leads to death, the other leads to righteousness and it leads to holiness and eternal life. And it's, it's one or the other. Most of it, we, we might feel like, I want door number three. I want the third option where it's like, it's all about me and I don't need to serve anyone. But the thing is, if we try and, try and go through that door, if we try and choose that way, what we're actually doing is just serving ourselves and serving our own sinful desires and our selfishness, and we're just slaves to sin again. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they're baptized in the name of Jesus, that he alone is their Lord, he is the one they serve, and that no one else is to be elevated to that position in their lives. Not Paul, not Apollos, not even themselves, just Jesus. So like for me in that traditional church where there's like a mutual acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and his rule over their lives, it brings unity. It kind of flies in the face of selfish ambitions of the world where people are kind of, you know, looking out for number one, but it's the complete opposite of that. It's preferring others over ourselves. 
And when our focus is on him, when it's serving him and loving him, our motivations are no longer about us and there's unity between us. In a lot of ways, I feel like I've got the easiest job in the world being a youth pastor. Um, and that's not just because people say, you don't do any real work. You just sit and play Xbox with teenagers all day. Um, part of that's true. And it's an important ministry, I'd like to say, Xbox. Um, but it's so easy because of a big part of it is because of the staff team that I work alongside. And there's a real sense of unity and harmony in that team. And in Psalm 133, it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And it's it's so true. It's so true. You can see that unity there where there's that mutual understanding, even in the mix of lots of different ministries, lots of different personality types that would maybe clash normally. You know, there's a real unity there. And there's probably a lot of reasons for it. But I think that the main one, the main reason there's so much unity is that for every single person on team, you can see that Jesus is Lord in their life. You can see that he has the right place, that they get it. They love him and they're serving him and they want to make him known. They want him, that he is Lord. And even when we're not surrounded by people who make unity easy, um, even if you know it feels a little bit difficult, when Jesus is Lord, he changes our heart towards people. And he's Lord not only in our good relationships, but also in the difficult ones that are strained. Um, we did the Road to Maturity course at, at GP recently, um, and the woman who kind of does all the talking on the DVDs, Mary Pitches, um, told a story about how she was really struggling with a woman in her church, um, just found her really difficult to get on with. So what she decided to do was commit to praying for that woman every day, just praying that God would bless her. Um, so she did that over, over a period of time, and then one day she was just talking to one of her friends about this woman, she just said, I just can't believe the change in her. I just can't believe, you know, what God has done in her. Um, how she just, she's a completely different person to what she was before. And then her friend says to her, she's not actually. Well, actually, your, your heart is what's changed. God has changed your heart towards her. And it's amazing, absolutely amazing, that when Jesus is Lord of our lives, even the difficult relationships and the difficult situations, he can turn that around. We're called to declare that he is Lord in all things. I'm just going to finish with this. Lord of the Rings, classic Christian uh, illustration there, Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite uh, films, one of my favorite books. Um, and there's a great moment in the last book when uh, the, the men of Rohan, the riders of Rohan, are about to go into battle. And they're facing a bigger enemy than they've ever faced before. And uh, their king, King Theoden, is kind of riding along the, the front lines. And he's giving this incredible speech. And he's stirring them all up. And he's like, let's ride! And all this stuff. And they're like, yeah! And everyone's like proper. Into, it's such a cool moment. And then all of a sudden, as one, they charge into the battle. And they charge into the enemy lines. And it's an amazing moment. And they're fighting. And as they're fighting, after a while they start to kind of get split off. They start to get separated. You know, the, the fighting is fierce and they're starting to get tired. And it's kind of not looking as good as it did at, at first. But then there's a moment when there's a horn call. And then for the people who are nearby, they know that that is the horn of the king. And then they see where his banners are and they all kind of shout, to the king. And then they all like ride towards the, the, the king's banners and they unite under his standard. And in that moment, their hope 
is renewed and they carry on fighting. And I think that that is such a picture for us today. You know, we live, we live in a world in the, you know, the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God where we see God breaking into our world um, and doing incredible things, but there's still so much of this world that, that's not right, that's wrong. And it, life is a battle sometimes. And in the battle of life, you know, we can get tired, we can be attacked, we can kind of feel separated from those around us. And the call that Paul is giving in this passage is to unite again under the king's standard, is to come back to Jesus, to remember why we're fighting, to remember who our king is, and to declare that he is Lord and renew our strength in him. To look at even the most difficult situations in our lives, the stuff that's really tough, and say, you know what, Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is still Lord over that. Even when we're taking hits and we don't understand what's going on, choosing to say, Jesus, you're my king. I'm going to follow you. You're in charge. You have the authority here. So Paul's horn blast, his call this morning, his call is for unity. It's to unite under the truth in who Jesus is, in his wholeness, in the sacrifice he made for us, and to remind ourselves that he is our Lord and he is the king. So why don't we stand?